Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School lesson for the fifth Sunday of Easter. That's May 15th, 2022. And today we'll be looking at another one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances when he appears to his disciples. And this is from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. And as we look at this text, before we look at John 21, I want to go back and look at another text, a similar story in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, to set the stage. Now, usually when we're looking at a previous event in the Gospels, I try to stay in the same Gospel. So, if we're looking at a story in John, I'll look at earlier passages in the Gospel of John. In this case, however, we're going to jump over and look at Luke chapter 5. And there, starting at verse 1, we read, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So in Luke chapter 5, we have Jesus calling his first disciples. And this would be Simon and James and John at the Sea of Gennesaret, the Lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. And there we have this miracle where the Fishermen have been fishing all night and they have caught nothing. And Jesus tells them to put out in the deep and let down the nets for the catch. And when they do so, they catch this net-breaking load full of fish. And remember Peter's response when this happens. He's been listening to Jesus teach. Now he witnesses this miracle. He knows that the Lord, the Son of God, is in his boat. And his response is, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Simon knows that he's a sinner. He knows he's in God's presence. And he wants to get away from that holiness. But instead of departing, Jesus invites him to follow and says, Do not be afraid, which is a word of absolution. It's a word of forgiveness. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. From now on, you will be my disciple. 
So we have this miracle as Jesus calls his first disciples, and now we have a pretty similar story in John chapter 21, once again involving fishing and a miracle and Peter the apostle. And this forms the first part of our reading for the day. Beginning at chapter 1, we hear this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, two sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So this is another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. He makes several in the Gospels. So we have plenty of stories with plenty of witnesses to tell us that he's alive. So in this case, we have seven witnesses, disciples of his. Several are named. We have Simon Peter and Thomas, Nathaniel, and James and John. And then two other disciples who for some reason are not named, But we have seven witnesses, five of them named from this story that Jesus is in fact risen from the dead. And like that story in Luke chapter 5, they go out fishing all night long and they get skunked. They catch nothing. So we read in verse 4, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So once again, like the story in Luke chapter 5, The disciples catch no fish overnight. Jesus appears and he tells them to go fishing one more time. This time, instead of the deep, he says, the right side of the boat. And once again, they have so many fish, they can't haul in the net and the net is breaking because there's so many fish. The uh, the tone here of Jesus is pretty familiar. He calls them children or or perhaps, you know, lads, have you caught any fish? So so there's a a familiarity here, even if they don't recognize him, kind of like a teacher speaking to pupils or something like that. The miracle takes place. And then we hear in verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So, seeing the miracle, the disciples wonder what happened, and we hear the disciple whom Jesus loved says, It is the Lord. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved is never identified in the Gospel of John. But strangely enough, neither is the Apostle John named in this Gospel. And as we'll see a little bit later in John chapter 21, it is 
almost certain that the disciple whom Jesus loved is in fact John, who, for whatever reason, perhaps humility, never names himself in the gospel that he writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. At any rate, the apostle whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord, and look what Peter does. In Luke 5, when he'd first met Jesus, when he knew that he was a son of God in the boat working miracles, he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. This time around, when he knows it's the Lord on shore, what does he do? He puts on his outer garments, so he's got his clothes with him, and he jumps in the water, throws himself into the sea, and swims for Jesus as fast as he possibly can. Before he was a disciple, he wanted to get away from holy God because he was a sinner. Now, as a disciple, he wants to get close to holy God, and again, he's still a sinner. They've seen the risen Jesus. Jesus has spoken peace to them. And Peter knows he, uh, he's not a perfect man yet. After all, don't forget, it was Peter who denied Jesus three times during Jesus' trial on the night of his passion. And yet, knowing his sin, Peter swims for shore. He can't wait for the boat to take him in. So we pick up the story in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. So they arrive on shore, and Jesus already has breakfast going, a charcoal fire, fish on it, some bread um, cooking, baking as well on, on the coals. And so Jesus has prepared a meal for them, but he invites them to bring some of the fish that they have caught as well. And this reading seems to be part of Jesus commissioning his disciples to to continue his work after he ascends. He provides some of the food. They provide some of the food. It's almost like he's, he's handing off the task of evangelizing from him to them before they go out to be fishers of men. The nets are full, full to breaking. There are 153 large fish. A lot of people have written a lot of articles on what 153 might symbolize, and the answer is, there's no clear symbolic meaning. The best we can conclude is, there were a lot of fish in the net, and 153 large fish is enough to make the nets nearly break, and yet the nets are not torn. So, it's another bread and fish meal between Jesus and the disciples, They've seen this before. Jesus has miraculously fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He's miraculously fed 4,000 with a few loaves and fish. Now he's feeding them bread and fish, although there's, you know, there's, there's no evidence even of, of him working a miracle for his portion. He may well have, have caught the fish on shore before, before they arrive back on land. At any rate, in verse 12 we read, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So, the risen Jesus appears to the disciples again, and and they are still in awe of the risen Lord, so they, they do not ask him, who are you? They know who it is, and this is part of the witness. They they testify that it is, in fact, the risen Son of God. And so Jesus feeds them. And I suppose that some have tried to make this into um, another kind of symbol of, of the Lord's Supper, just like in, in Luke 24, he, he, uh, he appears to the disciples at Emmaus in the breaking of the bread. Um, there might be a hint of that there. Jesus is feeding his disciples, but perhaps... The miracle may just be simple enough in that it's uh, the risen Christ who reigns over all things still takes the time to have breakfast with his followers. At any rate, now we have three accounts as of John 21 verse 14 that Jesus is risen from the dead. And now the story goes on. Remember, Peter was the spotlit disciple in Luke 5 when he said, depart from me. Peter is a spotlit disciple in this story so far as he swims for shore while the rest of the, of the six disciples row toward shore with the net. And now the focus turns on Peter even more. So we read in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? Just a quick note there. Jesus has called Peter son of John one other time. And that was when they first met back in chapter 1, verse 42. So when Peter got his start with with Jesus at the very beginning of this gospel, Jesus called him Simon, son of John. And now in this last chapter, he calls him son of John again because this This is going to be a new start for Peter. So he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, Jesus kind of switches words back and forth here. When he says, do you, do you love me? He uses different words for love. And people have tried to make a big deal about that. Although the words he uses for love here, um, uh, agapao and phileo, they're kind of interchangeable in the Gospel of John. So it's, Jesus is pretty much just using different words to, to say the same thing. And then he uses different words to say, tend my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, 
etc. So he's, he's switching words around. And, and so people have tried to puzzle out what each phrase means. What's the difference between tend my sheep and, and feed my lambs? And what is Jesus saying? And, and probably the, the best interpretation is that there's not a great difference between tend my sheep and feed my lambs. Jesus is simply saying to Peter, you denied me before and you ran away, so you kind of self-excommunicated, but I have restored you. I have, I have made you my, my holy child again. You are my brother before God, my father, and I am also making you once again, not just my disciple, but an apostle. So I'm reminding you to care for my people, the sheep, the lambs, tend them, feed them, take care of my congregation. So, so Peter is, is grieved by all of this because the three questions remind him of his three denials. But he still responds appropriately. He confesses his love for Jesus. He has no expectations of grandeur. Rather, he delights to be who Jesus makes him to be. Even when Jesus says this, he goes on in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. So, Jesus declares to Peter that as his apostle, Peter will follow in the footsteps of Jesus, even to the point of dying like Jesus did. And early church history tells us pretty reliably that Peter was crucified just like Jesus was crucified, except that he was crucified upside down. Now, that's a, uh, a frightful thing to hear, but Christians have always considered martyrdom to be a, uh, a, strange, a strange blessing, a strange benediction by the world of all things, because when the world persecutes Christians, when the world martyrs Christians, the world has identified them so closely with Jesus that they desire Christians to share the same fate. So if you or I are persecuted, if you or I are martyred, it's certainly not something to look forward to as far as the experience goes. But where we suffer for the sake of Jesus, we can say, I am comforted that the world knows that I'm a follower of Jesus so much that it treats me the same way it treated Jesus. And as God the Father cared for his son, God the Father will care for me too. In this case, this is part of Jesus' reinstatement of Peter. He tells him, you will take care of my lambs, you will feed my sheep, and you will follow in my footsteps even to the point of death. And then he says, follow me. An affirmation that Peter is restored, uh, perhaps now that all the cards are on the table saying, um, now that you know the whole story, still be my disciple. 
Now we read in verse 20, a little bit more, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he should remain until I come, what is that to you? So as Jesus tells Peter he will die a martyr, Peter says, well, what about the disciple whom Jesus loves? What about John who's standing nearby? And Jesus essentially says to Peter, that's not your concern. My disciples will glorify me in different ways. And in my foreknowledge, I know that you will, you will glorify me by, by suffering and dying in my name. If John remains alive until I come again in glory, why does that matter to you? Now, in fact, John... Um, is not alive today, at least not in this world, in the flesh. He has since, long since joined our Lord in heaven. But of the apostles, John is the one who's not martyred. We hear from early church historians that John survives uh, until he's about 100 years old. He is eventually uh, teaching in Ephesus. And he teaches until he is so weak that he must be carried in and out of church and... Um, as, as the historians say, his final words to the congregation are that they should love, love one another. So does John have it better than Peter? Well, it's certainly good not to die a martyr's death. On the other hand, where Peter is, is delivered from this world far earlier, John sees a lot more trouble and a lot more suffering because he has a longer life. So it's actually kind of foolish to debate who has the better deal. They're both blessed because they're both redeemed by Christ. And now they rest from their labors in heaven. So now we have this little postscript at the end of the Gospel of John, verses 24 and 25. 24 reads, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So, now the gospel according to John finishes with the revelation, the revealing that, that the disciple whom Jesus loved is the one who is bearing witness about these things, who writes this gospel. And so, this is as close we have to, to the, the revealing that John is, in fact, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why does he write? Not to tell his own memoir, not to just give us a good yarn, but he writes to bear witness. At the end of John chapter 20, he says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. And now he sort of repeats that postscript by saying that he writes to bear witness about Jesus, that you may know that his testimony is true. 
And then he finishes with, with this just curious statement. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And what, what a great conclusion to this gospel. Of course, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which include some stories about Jesus not found in this gospel. But John's point here is simply, this Son of God, Jesus, in the flesh, is the eternal Son of God, all-powerful, all-knowing, and does all things and does them well. And so here we have just a hint of what he has done. But what John records is what we need to know for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. So um, rather than waste our time on what we can't know about Jesus, instead we give thanks for what we do know. That Christ became flesh and died and rose and ascended that we might have everlasting life. All right, that's a quick look at John chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. God's blessings on your continued meditation on these verses, and God's blessing if you are teaching this to others. And until we speak again, the peace of the Lord be with you. Amen.